the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. If you have a loved one who is struggling with alcohol or other drugs, you may have feelings of frustration, anger, fear, or sadness. You may also feel powerless and unsure of how to offer help or support. According to today's guest, Dr. Jeffrey Foote, you don't have to try a tough approach or wait for your loved one to hit rock bottom before taking action. He contends that you can be a force for positive change. Dr. Foote joins us to offer practical advice to help you navigate substance use or other compulsive behaviors without creating conflict. Dr. Foote is co-author of the book Beyond Addiction and the Beyond Addiction Workbook for Family and Friends. Welcome, Dr. Foote. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Doctor, it's been reported that one in four families in the United States are impacted by substance abuse. Why do you believe we are seeing this type of addiction rate? Well, it's not that's not a new rate, so that's really kind of the steady state that we've always had. Um, certainly, we're in the middle of a really terrible um, uh, overdose epidemic <clears throat> related to opiates and related to fentanyl specifically. But um, I, I guess I've been in this field long enough to have seen a variety of really terrible uh, moments in time. Back in the 80s, there was the, um, uh, a window of time when, when crack was a big thing and uh, was creating a lot of havoc. And so we seem to have these different waves. Right now, this is a particularly terrible one of, um, of a lot of loss of life related to um, opiates. So, you know, when you, when you step back and look at the numbers um, and that rate of one in four families is affected, I think it's probably even almost a, a bit higher than that um, because um, if you just ask the question, how many people um, have alcohol use disorder in this country, you're talking about 20 million plus people. Um, and, you know, if an average family um, uh, is, you know, three, four people getting affected by that. Um, and you're talking about 80 million people um, just for alcohol issues alone. So um, it's an ongoing issue, and it's been with us for a long time. Well, you just said that this has been a problem that we've had for a long time. Has the pandemic made it worse? Did we have these types of numbers pre-COVID? It, it definitely made it worse. Um, uh, I mean, the, the, the opiate overdose rate, was going up um, astronomically since the uh, early teens, 2012, 2013, 2014, started to really escalate. Um, but certainly COVID has made that worse. COVID has made use of almost every substance worse, including alcohol. You mentioned that it seems to come in waves. Is there something that you're able to pinpoint going on within society that leads to these waves? No, I mean, there's always speculation in this studies on what causes these kind of things. Um, but, you know, if you look at that, the supply is always an issue. Um, the degree of uh, treatment that's available is an issue. The public education uh, is has an impact on these types of things. Um, you know, for right now, there's a, there's a problem with supply, um, which is a, a supply of opiates called fentanyl um, are causing a, a huge problem and a huge number of deaths. Um, but that's different than the emergence of crack, for instance, which was a new form of cocaine. Um, so it really sort of depends on the era and the substance. Um, and what we have tried to really focus on is just 
how do we help people? Um, and I'm a clinical psychologist and have spent my career doing work with the client who is struggling specifically with substances, the person who's got that issue. Um, but over the last 10 years, have really we really branched out and started to um, do some work with our foundation for families very specifically um, as a group of people who are also really neglected in this whole in this whole picture. Um, there's, there's treatment providers, there's the people struggling with the substances, uh, and then the kind of the last people who get any attention typically are families um, and, and what we've known about that for a long time but, but the treatment system has not really acted on is, boy, there's a lot of power in that, in that family unit. There's a huge amount of motivation, a huge amount of dedication and love. And if we could give families some tools that actually are effective um, instead of traditionally some tools that aren't, aren't so awesome and aren't so effective, uh, we might really be able to make some headway. So that's what we have shifted our focus to as well. Obviously, education is important. And you just mentioned fentanyl. So for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with what is going on, can you tell us a little bit about that? I, I remember recently I was speaking with um, an addiction recovery specialist who told me when we were younger, if someone smoked mm-hmm. pot or something like that, you had the luxury of making a mistake. But with fentanyl, mm-hmm. he said, it only takes one time to kill you. Is that accurate? And, and can you tell our parents a little bit about it? Sure. Um, and, and the scary thing about fentanyl. So in, in, again, in, in the world of substance use, um, um, we're, also, we're also old enough to remember that there's always scary messages around substance use. Um, so, you know, going, going back, you know, 80 years, the, the messaging around any kind of substance, alcohol or marijuana, all these different things, has always been kind of um, uh, amplified as a really terrible um, uh, type of, of experience that someone could have. And, you know, they'll, they'll be washed away um, in the grips of these things. Um, that often has not been the case, actually. It's not an accurate description of substances. Uh, we just happen to have a situation right now where fentanyl, which is a um, synthetic opiate, um, you know, so the non-synthetic opiates are things like heroin, um, and then we started to have a problem with uh, manufactured opiates for pain. OxyContin has caused lots of problems and um, was widely distributed around the country and marketed heavily, which now pharmaceutical companies are you know, paying hundreds of millions of dollars to try to get off the hook for that kind of stuff. But um, um, as a separate issue, um, a, sub- a synthetic opiate called fentanyl has been um, around now for a decade and um, is a highly potent form of an opiate. So opiates, um, if you take too much of an opiate or if you take in a highly, uh, very strong version of an opiate, um, you uh, can shut down your breathing mechanism is really what happens. Um, and that's why people are dying. Um, so fentanyl has bizarrely made its way into all sorts of things on the internet, including benzodiazepine pills like Xanax and stuff like that. It's in there. Or it could be put into other substances. So um um, we're finding it in cocaine samples for people who come in and get tested for cocaine use. They have fentanyl in their cocaine. So people are overdosing with having no idea that they're taking an opiate. Um, so that's the really scary part right now. Well, you know, we always try to tell parents or loved ones what to watch out for, the warning signs of addiction. But with this, you may not even have the opportunity to see those signs. Right. That's true, because um, it can be a one-time thing. And again, after Lots of years of messaging about one time will kill you. Um, this substance actually can kill people. It is a scary thing. Um, and again, what we have tried to start to do is work with families. Um, so there's, there's recognizing signs of substance use, but then there's the longer term picture of how do I really help a loved one? Um, and how can I effectively have them start to think about doing something different, have them start to think about changes? Um, and, you know, with most families, when these issues come up, it, they're scary. Uh, they make people upset. They make people feel anxious. Um, if I'm the person using a substance in a family, I know that people are going to be upset and scared and, and angry and so forth. So I'm typically you know, going to go underground and not talk about it or not tell the truth about it, that kind of thing. Um, so communication typically gets bad and suffers and people just don't know how to interact around these issues. Um, and, you know, it's the last thing you want as a a family member or a parent is you want to know how to help you want to know um, what would be effective here um, and and how to help me how do I navigate this situation it's not something that you know we were ever trained to do 
uh, as a parent. And so, so that's what we've done. That's what we've written this new book, Beyond Addiction Workbook, um, is to is to really help explain this and give people some very practical tools to approach their family member. If a parent or a loved one sees the signs within a family member and that person is not willing to admit that he or she has a problem, how can this situation be approached in a non-judgmental manner so that there is effective communication? Yeah, well, we, we have um, spent about the last 10 years developing a whole approach uh, called the invitation to change. And the, and the words in that matter, it is an invitation um, that is being stressed um, to uh, a loved one to consider change. Uh, and sometimes that way of thinking about it can can feel um, challenging to a family member, to a, to a parent, for instance, um, because they would rather just have change happen. Um, so most of us as family members are more likely to go into the demand change mode uh, as opposed to inviting change. And so in this approach, the invitation to change, there are uh, there are sort of three main areas to think about as a as a helper. And it's what we, we consider a helping model. How can I be a more effective helper? And, th- and that could be as a parent, as a sibling, as a friend, uh, as a therapist. So it's not really just limited to families, um, but it's a way to know how to help. Uh, and we start with trying to help people um, help with understanding. So how can I understand the other person? Um, and I'll, I can talk about that in a minute. Then we also talk about helping with awareness. How do I stay aware of myself in this process? And then helping with action. What are the tools specifically, um, reinforcement, communication tools that I can use? But we start with the whole helping with understanding. This is kind of the foundation of how to be an effective helper. Um, if I if what we have found over and over again is if I can't really put myself in the other person's shoes just even a little bit, doesn't mean I have to, I'm not agreeing, I'm not, you know, um, blessing what they're doing. I'm just trying to get myself to understand what might be happening here over in their side of the street. Um, it, if I can do that, if I can start to think through, this is my kid, I know how anxious they are, I know when they smoke pot, it really helps them socialize, it really helps them um, uh, not feel so anxious all the time. Otherwise, they wouldn't even actually go out of the house. Um, those types of understandings really start to shift our whole approach to our loved one. Um, because then instead of feeling like an assault on us or an insult or a betrayal, um, it starts to feel like, okay, I don't like this, but I get it. I can understand, you know, you have, my husband has chronic pain and, you know, from a, an injury to his back. Um, my wife is grieving the, the loss of her mother and has been in a terrible place with this for the last year and has been drinking too much. Like these, are, these are the reasons that people use substances, not because they're evil. They use them because it makes sense to them in some way, in, in very straightforward ways, not, not hard to understand ways. Um, and if we can help a family member start there, can you look across the table and get yourself in that person's head a little bit and understand why this might be happening. It just changes the whole interaction. It makes it more compassionate. It makes me feel less betrayed. It makes me feel like helping more. Um, and then I can move into um, other tools and learn how to communicate in, in new ways that are really helpful. But if I'm just angry and upset and feeling betrayed all the time because uh, I don't understand this at all, I'm, I'm going to have a much harder time being a, an effective helper. When you take this approach as a loved one, do you find that the person who is addicted becomes more receptive? Is this a way in to help the person? It is. And, you know, it, it, the, it's very easy to have an interaction with somebody. As I mentioned before, you know, the, your loved one um, knows they're doing something that you probably don't approve of or that, you know, you would be upset about. Um, and so it's very easy to have an interaction with that person that makes them go underground or makes them feel defensive or makes them feel aggressive towards me. Um, like that's, that's the usual, you know? So the real question is, how do I, how do I approach this in a way that's going to help them be less defensive, help them put some of their guard down, help them feel like, okay, we could have a talk about this. I don't have to just shut you out totally. Cause, cause that's what you want. I, I want to be able to talk to you. I want you to be able to maybe hear some ideas. I want to be able to understand what's going on with you. 
Um, and that stuff is that communication is very easy to shut off. Um, so yes, starting with a, from a place of understanding them, again, not the same as agreeing uh, um, um, or blessing it, but understanding really changes what's going on. And the second part of this then is is of this helping idea is helping with self awareness. So that's the part where we include ourselves in this change process. So. I want to help my son or daughter or husband or whoever it is. Um, can I stay aware of myself in this process? So I'm, I've spent a little time trying to understand what's going on with you. Um, now can I also be paying attention to me and knowing that I'm really tense or I'm really upset or I'm pretty exhausted um, and I'm in a lot of pain? Um, and can I start to bring that into the picture so that I'm not just left out of this all the time and feeling like I've, I've completely run out of gas or... Um, I've got nothing left in me to help anymore. Um, so not forgetting ourselves in this equation matters a lot um, in sustaining these kind of this helping role. You know, people really exhaust themselves trying to help loved ones, um, and then they're just in the worst place. They're angrier. They're more more fatigued. Uh, you know, not thinking straight, um, and acting in ways that they don't want to be acting as a person either. So yeah. the awareness part is helping them become aware of themselves, including, as a family member, including your own values. How do you want to show up to this? How do you want to be as a parent? Um, even even though you're worried and upset, how do you want things to be going with your child and you, um, or your husband and you? Um, and being able to access that that part of you and say, I, I could shout and I could scream and slam the doors and kick them out, but that's not actually who I am as a person. That doesn't feel right to me. That isn't it's not what I want with my loved one here. So how can I pay attention to myself and understand what it is I do want and how, how I do want to show up to this? Well, you made a great point also, Doctor, because I think a lot of times people come from that place of shouting and demands and, you know, the ultimatums because they think that if they approach it in any other way, they're enabling and they're condoning mm-hmm. The behavior. Mm-hmm. So that was a great mm-hmm. point that you made because I think people try to navigate that balance, enabling and loving kindness. And and no doubt, you know, the 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 shouting and the and the yelling and stuff like that is coming from. I mean, they want to help still, um, but they're frustrated or they're end of their rope kind of a thing. And and that's where we, we can all get to that place. You know, it's it's totally understandable. Um, and all we're saying in this in this invitation to change approach is slow down, check in with yourself, know that this is hard, let's acknowledge that this is painful. But if you're trying to help somebody you love, it's going to be painful. And we talk about that idea as trying to change our whole relationship to, to pain, really, and to discomfort. Um, you know, we can get into the feeling of, you know, why can't they just go back to how they used to be? And why can't our family just run the way it used to run? And you know, I didn't. I didn't ask for this, um, and of course that's true. You didn't ask for it, um, and it's not going to go back the way it was. So can I can I do some work to accept the idea that this is actually where we are? This is true, um, and it's going to be hard. And it's going to be painful, and the goal doesn't have to be to try to make all that pain go away, to try to make us a, a quote happy family again. Um, the goal can be how do we stay connected? How do I show up? in ways that are so important to me, and how can I help them think about this? You know, shouting, back to the question about the shouting, yes, it's it's less likely um, to be effective because you're just going to make the person get back against the wall and feel defensive, mm-hmm. and then you've lost them. You had mentioned before that some people who get addicted are people who start off with a bad back, they have back pain, or they have other types of pain that escalates to an addiction. How much... Mm-hmm of the addiction issue is tied to mental health issues. Is, is that what we should be addressing at the core? Well, I think, I think we should be addressing it all. You know, um, the, the, <clears throat> the whole idea, I mean, we, we can use the word addiction. Sometimes people use this, have the idea that it's a disease, that kind of a thing. Um, there's, there's not a lot of evidence for that, <laughs> truthfully. Um, and um, that can be kind of a, a shocker to people. But really, if you step back and look at who's struggling with substances, it's a wide spectrum of people um, from very mild issues to life-threatening issues across all sorts of substances 
and the way I got into this problem is different than the next 10 people in line. I mean, it's, it's really not a, you know, if you think of a disease, you think of something that is uniform. We can describe the symptoms and the signs of that and what organs it affects and that kind of stuff and what's the typical course. There's nothing like that in substance use issues. There's, a, there's millions upon millions of people who have problems with substance use and then they don't anymore. So like the idea that it's a lifelong disease, it's not actually true. Um, sometimes that's true and it's a lifelong struggle and sometimes it's not true. Um, and I got into it because of my back pain and you got into it because your dad and his dad had really terrible alcohol problems and it's genetic. It's a genetic loading for it in your family. And the next person got into it because they have terrible social anxiety to your point about other mental health issues or they have really bad depression. Um, and taking a bunch of stimulants is really helpful to them that, that lets them function. So there's multiple paths into these problems and multiple paths out. There isn't really one size fits all, uh, which is another one of the things we talk about in the Beyond Addiction Workbook. It's one size is not truly going to fit your loved one <clears throat> the same way it's going to fit your neighbor's loved one. Um, it, everyone is different. And um, family members are actually the experts in this. They know what's going on. Um, most family members could describe, they may, if you ask them why your kid or your husband using substances, you may get an angry response at first because they're just irresponsible, because they're a jerk, because, you know, whatever. Um, but if you slowed them down and said, okay, and why else? You know, who are they what, that lead them to drink too much? Um, they would tell you. They would say, well, you know, he works really long hours and I, I've always thought he doesn't know how to express his feelings and he doesn't know how to blow off steam in any other way than what he learned in college. And so he goes out with his buddies and he drinks way too much and he blacks out. Okay. Good explanation. It's not an excuse. It's an actual explanation for that person. And that's different than the, their neighbor's husband who drinks too much. This is, this is an important part of, of how to think about this. Um, when we say <clears throat> that behaviors make sense, the substance using behaviors make sense. Again, I don't have to like it, but it does make sense. Um, and, and it's different. One size doesn't fit all. It's different for each person. Um, uh, and it's really critical to, if I'm going to be an effective helper, to actually understand this person, not some person that we're calling an addict or some other sort of pejorative word like that. Right. Labeling the person. Once you yeah. understand the situation where that person's coming from and you have an open line of communication, what next? What happens next? Yeah. Well, having an open line of communication can take a while. Right. <laughs> so, so me understanding is uh, helpful. It'll slow me down. It'll probably ultimately create some space here in our household for you, the person who's struggling to feel safer to talk to me. Um, but that can take a while. Um, and, and in the meantime, as we were talking about, you know, I need to be aware of myself. I need to be aware of my own values. Um, I need to be able to start to develop some self-compassion in this whole process. Um, and when I have, if I can keep working on those aspects, understanding them, understanding myself, it creates much more of a fertile ground for things like communication skills training. Um, you know, um, one of the one of the most straightforward ones we talked about is is just simply listening to another person. Can you tell me what's going on? I, I'm not actually going to sit here and make suggestions and try to get you to go to treatment and tell you what's wrong and blah, blah, blah. I just actually just like to hear from you. Like That's a really unusual thing for lots of families when they're under a lot of pressure. The desire to, to say, okay, okay, thanks for telling me that. Now can we go to rehab is really strong. So can we learn to just listen? A lot of these skills come from something called motivational interviewing. And, and so this, this whole model, the invitation to change, has elements of different evidence-based approaches that we know are very effective. Motivational interviewing is one of them. It's a whole set of communication skills that are really helpful in lowering defenses. There are skills from something called craft, community reinforcement and family training. How do you do positive reinforcement with somebody? How do you notice the things that are changing instead of only being able to pay attention to the negative stuff every time it happens because that's how we're tuned. You know, we're like waiting for the next shoe to drop and I'm waiting for you to have a relapse and I'm waiting for something bad to happen. That's understandable. But if we are missing any positives, it's not a very rewarding environment for our loved one. So if I as a family member, and this is the action question you're asking about, if I as a family member can start to notice, I appreciated you getting home on time. You may have smelled like pot, I don't know, but I do appreciate that you got home on time. I appreciate you cleaning your room. 
can we start to have some some positive um, stuff in the mix here uh, to kind of ease the tension to kind of make this be a place where I will notice change. I will notice success. I will notice positive things. And the number of people who are struggling with substances who say, yeah, my parents, my spouse, all they notice is the negative. I'm always getting lectured. I'm always messing up. It, it's a lot. That's, that is what happens, you know. So can we help ourselves as helpers to notice some of the positive stuff? We know that positive reinforcement is one of the most powerful things we can do to facilitate change. It's just true. It's just as a principle of every research study ever done on change, it doesn't have to do with substances at all. If you want to help somebody change, positive reinforcement is your most powerful tool. We're talking about addiction in this conversation, but what you're teaching us can be applied to foster any type of relationship. Absolutely. Foster relationships, foster connection and closeness, uh, foster greater positivity, and foster change. And again, as you just said, it doesn't have to be about substances. It's not a unique thing. Um, these are principles that are helpful um, for behavior change of any sort. You know, we all struggle with ambivalence about change. I'm asking my husband to stop drinking uh, or to change my kid to change their marijuana use um, while I struggle with exercise and eating. Okay. And there's some common principles in how to help people change that don't, don't have to do with the marijuana and the alcohol part. It have to do with how do we help open those doors for someone, you know? The book is the Beyond Addiction Workbook for Family and Friends, Evidence-Based Skills to Help a Loved One Make Positive Change. Doctor, if our listeners would like to get more information about you and your work, where can they go? Well, I think the the book is available at um, newharbinger.com. And our foundation um, has has a lot of materials and resources for families. Um, Is uh, cmcffc.org. That's the CMC Foundation for Change. So it's cmcffc.org. And you can go there and and look at videos and get lots of materials there as well. Doctor, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? What do you want to leave our listeners with? Well, one of the things we talk about here is is this is a a set of ideas that we also call a combination of science and kindness. Um, And for way too long in this country, certainly, I think we've had a, a much harsher approach, approach to substance issues and a much more confrontational approach. Uh, and confrontation doesn't work. That's the problem with it. Um, kindness, understanding, self-awareness, values-based approaches, um, and better communication, those are all things that can be learned. They take practice. Um, but if you can spend some time practicing them, you're going to actually have a better shot at helping, um, helping invite some change in your family. Dr. Foote, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled, leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. Hello, doctor. Hi, business owner. Hey there, freelancer. Has COVID affected your receivables? Of course it has, and I'm sure you could probably use some professional help. A true test in choosing a top-notch debt collection agency is their recovery rate and the amount of money collected by the agency for their clients. That's a great return on investment. Also important today are the five-star Google reviews about their personnel and services. 
Wouldn't you hire a collection agency with 830-plus national reviews, over 70% of which are from the debtors that the agency was able to collect funds from? That's great diplomacy. May I suggest Kinnam, the diplomatic debt recovery firm? Our name comes from Kin Family, Num Numbers, Family Before Numbers, People Before Profits. This is Vito Mazza. Reach me at 800-850-5110. WNYM Hackensack. Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. We all experience pain and we accept it as being human. Pain is such a big player in our lives that we search for ways to relieve it, which often brings more pain. According to today's guest, Guy Finley, we don't need to crumble under our pain. He says that we can learn how to use it in the right way in order to find new power and inner freedom. Guy is the best-selling author of The Secret of Letting Go and 40 other works. He's been a guest on national media and is the founder and director of the Life of Learning Foundation. Welcome, Guy. Thanks for joining us. It is such a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you, Joan. You know, I always enjoy our time together. Well, Guy, I, I like this topic because pain is something that we all experience and no one can escape it. But Much of the time, we think that it's just a normal part of life, and we accept it. And it seems like this pain is getting deeper and deeper. If you look at statistics, suicide is up, and people feel lost, and they're anxious, and they're depressed. So what is it that you believe is happening that's making us feel this way? Well, first and foremost, I would say, honestly, that what we do is we resist the pain Mm -hmm. that comes with this life because a part of us and much to answer your question, believes that who and what we are is uh, somehow meant to walk through this life without any suffering at all, and that if we do have any pain, it's because we've missed the mark or otherwise failed to become what whatever it is that we imagined we were supposed to do or to be. And that idea drives us, the idea of becoming something uh, special, recognized, known, loved, whatever it may be, creates a, a kind of back pressure inside of us that we have no awareness of whatsoever uh, because all we know to do is to serve the idea that says we're supposed to be like this and then the pain of not hitting the mark, if you will, uh, validates the pain. So we're caught in a loop where we're convinced on one hand uh, of what we are meant to do, the purpose of our life, and can't reconcile that there's a relationship between this pain that won't go away that we resist and the fact that we have misunderstood the purpose of our life. So that's the main thrust of what I'm talking about. So, Guy, when you're going through these difficult times, you know negativity, those thoughts, they prevail. And then those thoughts create emotions and experience, which therefore perpetuate the thoughts. And that's the cycle. So what advice do you offer to help someone become conscious of those thoughts and make a switch. You know, this is a, a big a big question, Joan. Let me tell, I know we have precious few moments, so I'll run through this story very quickly. Imagine a man who goes to a third world, fourth world country. To He's an anthropologist. He wants to study open air markets and the interaction of the native people. And so he finds himself uh, on the way to one of these open air markets when over the hill comes something that astonishes him. It's, it's a man uh, and a cart and a donkey, but... The donkey has saddled the man, and the man is pulling the cart that's full of sugarcane, chickens, and whatever produce is going to market. The anthropologist can't believe his eyes. Uh, How could a donkey saddle a man? So knowing the language, he goes and he comes to the man. He says, sir, I, I don't understand. What tradition is this? The donkey's riding you and that you're pulling the cart. And the man looks at him, smiles sheepishly, and says, well, that's the only way I could get the donkey to go to the market. The point here is that we have become saddled with the false belief that somehow or other living and allowing negative states to tell us who we are and what we have to do by using this whip of pain to produce the results it wants, we've become a compromised race of beings. We are never meant to be subordinate to our own thoughts and feelings let alone negative states that define and confine us. 
everything, Joan, is upside down. So when you ask, what can we do? It begins with helping to be reminded of the fact that we are not meant to be saddled with useless pain, unworthy, undignified, corruptive, negative thoughts and feelings. Once we understand that, if we can feel the truth of it, then when something tries to mount us and drive us to market, so to speak, we can uh, recognize, experience the presence of that familiar pain in its pattern and understand, all right, look, you are not my boss. I, you don't ride me. In fact, you don't belong in my life, let alone uh, saddling me. So, Guy, once we recognize that pain, then how do we turn it into power? That's the beauty of what we're talking about, Joan. Do I need power if I can wake up and recognize where I'm agreeing to be made powerless? I'm going to re- I'll say it again. If, if my problem is unawareness of the fact that roles have been reversed, I have become the subject of my own thoughts and feelings, and that in that subjugation, I am made to suffer in the pursuit of their ends and goals. Do I need to do anything other than become aware of how I have agreed to be made powerless? Isn't the search for power in our lives the attempt to overcome what presently overcomes us? And if we see that what we're overcome by is a mistaken relationship with our own thoughts and feelings, then the moment that awareness grows, so does the powerlessness disappear. So once we see pain for what it is, we're released. Yes, it, it is not our authority. Look, when you have a toothache, God forbid, how many of us know that when we have a toothache, we're not exactly uh, running a four-minute mile to get to the dentist. Agreed? Mm-hmm. Maybe not for you. For me <laughs> and most people I know, right. the minute you have some unknown pain mm-hmm. or one that promises to produce more, the last thing you want to do is deal with it. Right. Now, when we don't deal with our consciousness of uh, that awareness of pain, does the pain get better or worse? Well, it goes physically. deeper. That's exactly right. It is rooting itself deeper. Now, we're talking physically right now. And, it, and what is the power by which it is rooting itself deeper into our life, bringing more pain eventually right. than what we've avoided? Right. And the answer is something in us resists the awareness of that pain or problem. Now, take that idea and move it over to psychological or emotional pain. When we have a pain, a sense of disappointment, of being betrayed, of feeling empty, that feeling of pain is in fact a kind of messenger. It is initially a revelation in our own psyche that's trying to reach us and tell us something is wrong. We're missing the mark. Now, where we go wrong is that when we feel like we're missing the mark and begin to suffer that pain, we listen to the pain tell us what to do to heal us. An example, I'm, st- I'm struggling because I'm working already 18 hours a day, 90 days a week. I thought it would make me free if I could get financially secure. I got some security, but I still don't feel wealthy enough. So my pain of being completely cut off from life tells me, well, guy, the way to be feel better and get rid of this pain is to do more of what didn't heal you the first time. So we have to learn to be able to see and to listen to the part of us that's trying to tell us, all right, something is out of alignment here, and then have the courage to recognize that the pain that we're experiencing cannot bring an end to itself. We must discover the source of that disconnect, and that lives in our own consciousness. Guy, thank you so much for being here with us today. We allow pain to infiltrate every area of our life. And by listening to what you're saying and, and allowing some of your strategies into our life, we can move through it and and really be able to feel more gratitude and, and blessings and joy. So thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. And let us all agree to learn how to use this pain instead of letting it use us. We'll be right back.
Everyone has times when they feel out of control and disorganized, but for some, the feeling is pervasive and persists. How do you know if you're situationally or chronically disorganized? Hi, I'm Gail Gruenberg, CPOCD, Chief Executive Organizer of Let's Get Organized, an award-winning professional organizing company serving clients who live with chronic disorganization. Life transitions can knock your organizing systems out of whack. If you've moved, had a baby, gotten married or divorced, retired, or experienced another life change, you may find yourself surrounded by clutter and chaos. All of these events are temporary and can cause situational disorganization. Allow time to pass to get acclimated to this new normal. Take stock of your current systems for managing time, space, relationships, and more. Chronic disorganization is pervasive and more permanent. If you're living with CD, you may have been disorganized most of your life. Disorganization negatively impacts your quality of life on a daily basis. You have tried every self-help solution available with little success. You may have a brain-based condition like ADHD or anxiety that impedes your executive functions, which include the skills required for organizing. I'm Gail Gruenberg with Let's Get Organized. Working with you on-site or virtually, we are your brain's personal trainer for getting organized. Call us at 201-613-2733 or visit our website at lgorganized.com. When you're having a conversation in relationship and it's somewhat controversial, you probably want to be heard and be right. Quite often that's what we want. And so we're maybe a little defensive, but is that right? Or do we want a result? The result being we'd like to get along. Hi, I'm Lindsay Levinson, Quality for Life Coaching. And they are two different things, getting along versus being heard and being right. See, because being heard and right is our defense, and that connects to our ego. But ego's not really going to get you that far. If you want a result, then you're going to want to work with humility and truth. So if you've got a difference of opinion, I mean, for me, I'll quickly look for a reason to say I'm sorry. And it has to be true. If I don't know what I've done yet, then I will say, I'm sorry you're hurting. I've done something wrong here because you're hurting. But let's talk further so we can figure this out. And you don't want to talk at someone by saying you this and you that because people just shut their ears. You want to use words like we and use words like experience. I'm having this experience. I know your experience is different. There isn't a right or wrong. There's just different experiences going on here. So we just need to talk it through and land somewhere that feels really good for both of us. So you want to do a lot of that non-heated conversation so that you can both feel good, but nobody is charging at another person. It's not being heard and right. It's just working toward the positive result. Lindsay Levinson, qualityforlifecoaching.com. Look me up. I'd love to talk to you, help you in any way I might be able to. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done. And you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Joining us for this week's To Your Health is Adrian Mariano, the Senior Director of Behavioral Health Services at Bergen Newbridge Medical Center. Adrian is here today to discuss eating disorders. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. So, Adrian, we hear a lot about eating disorders, but many people may not be familiar with what they actually encompass. So what are the most common eating disorders? So the most common eating disorders are anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder. There's a few other of them that are not in what we call the DSM-5. The DSM-5 is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. This is what physicians and doctors use to diagnose people. It really helps us categorize and help treat and assess people that we're working with. So anorexia is one of the most common. It's characterized by weight loss, difficulties maintaining appropriate weight, and a distorted body image. Bulimia is also something that is um, prominent when we're working with eating disorders, and that's really someone who's using binging and what we call uh, compensatory behavior. So they might be using vomiting to really compensate for 
the effects of binge eating. Binge eating disorder is actually the most common of all of them. It's one of the most uh, one of the eating disorders that was newly added to the DSM-5. So they're not using the self-induced vomiting. They're just binging and then experiencing shame and guilt because they're eating to the point of discomfort. Who is most at risk for these disorders that you just described? So the people that are most at risk for eating disorders are young women. Um, That's kind of the typical people that we do see, but it is kind of more than that. So we really see through evidence, um, social media really plays a part in this. Um, You're being constantly bombarded with different images that are not the traditional body image that you're seeing. There's a lot of harmful images that are being portrayed on social media. Also, people that have a parent that might be dealing with an eating disorder themselves or also exhibiting uh, disordered eating in some way. Um, We also see the LGBTQ community really struggling with eating disorders, the transgender individuals, they ex- experience eating disorders at a significantly higher rate than cisgender individuals. Also gay men, um, they actually represent only 5% of the total male population, but among men who have eating disorders, 42% of them identify as gay. You just described a, a number of things that could lead to an eating disorder. Is it also not so much about body image, but is it more about control? Like this is the one thing a person can control in their life? Exactly. So it's the control. So they might be experiencing depression or anxiety, and these are ways to really compensate for those feelings. They might be numbing themselves out by using these types of defense mechanisms to deal with what their mental health is struggling with. So if if a major root cause could be wanting to be in control of something. How do you go about treating this? So there's different levels of treatment, and it really depends on where they're at in their their disorder. Some people might need inpatient or residential treatment. These are patients that we typically see that have unstable vital signs. They're really progressed to the point where they can't be in the community any longer, and they need to have their health maintained at a proper level. So they won't be able to do a traditional outpatient program. And that really brings me into the next type of level of care. So um, if they have completed an inpatient or residential treatment, they might be dropped down and their discharge plan might be partial or intensive outpatient treatment, which really means they've been stabilized. Um, They're still working with a lot of symptomology. Um, They might be still having the binging. They might be having the restricting but they can be really maintained in this level of treatment. For a partial level of care, you might be only going five days a week, so Monday through Friday, and an intensive outpatient treatment is really even a lower level of care. They still need treatment, but they're doing pretty well, so they might be only going three days a week. Adrian, what are the signs and symptoms? When should a loved one become concerned? So that's a great question. So some signs and symptoms really manifest in different ways. So they might be emotional or behavioral, and sometimes you might see physical symptoms. So it's important to be on the lookout for all of these things. So emotionally and behaviorally, so if you see somebody or you have a loved one that you see has a preoccupation with weight, food, calories, if they are having too much carbs for the day or fat grams or talking about dieting a lot, that's something to be on the lookout for. Also a refusal to eat certain food groups and progressing to restrictions of whole categories of food. So I'm not eating carbs today. I'm not eating any sugar or anything. Also appearing uncomfortable eating around others. You might see them also withdraw from friends and family and some extreme mood swings. Physically, you might see noticeable noticeable changes in weight. So they might be going from extremely heavy to extremely thin and back and forth. You might also have them describe stomach cramps or some GI issues. Um, In women, also menstrual irregularities, difficulty concentrating. Um, You might also see them faint, have sleep problems, feeling cold all the time. Um, For those who binge and purge, you might also see cuts and calluses across the top of the finger joints and swelling along the, the salivary glands and also fine hair on the body that you see typically in newborn babies because they're losing uh, nutrients within the body because of the purging. Adrian, can you provide some resources where people can get help? Absolutely. 
So one of the best resources is to go on the National Eating Disorders Association website, or called NIDA. They provide a wealth of information about eating disorders, treatment, risk factors, any signs and symptoms. They also provide a search engine for providers specializing in treatment for eating disorders and also provides assistance when negotiating with your insurance company and help with appeals if treatment is denied. And Bergen Newbridge has a new program. Can you tell us a little bit about that as well? Absolutely. So we're really excited to offer this new program. And this specializes in all types of eating disorders for men and women and people of all um, socioeconomic statuses. So we cater to people that may not have insurance or Medicaid or Medicare and also any private insurances. This is set up as an outpatient program. So um, we start out five days a week, Monday through Friday. And then after a month of treatment, we see if we can drop them down to an intensive outpatient level of care. They'll be working with a psychiatrist, social work staff, a nutritionist, and also any nursing that might be available to them. So we will be addressing any of their symptomology. Um, We also have a huge medical center. So if we need to talk about stabilizing them medically or psychiatrically, we have that available here too. And if you'd like to get more information about this program, you can visit newbridgehealth.org. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember, the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.